And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. Hello everyone and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host as always, Mr. Luke Giaconetti, and I would like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. Hope everyone enjoyed our previous episode where we took a look at the second of Marvel Comics' Ultraman miniseries, The Trials of Ultraman. Very fun comic. Uh, Today we are going to be changing things up a little bit. We are moving uh, not back to a movie or a TV show. We are actually going to be talking about a video game. We're going to be talking about the game Dawn of the Monsters, a Daikaiju-themed beat-em-up, which uh, just recently came out. But before we get into that, we do have some news, so let's jump right into it. Up first, uh, Shin Ultraman, which you'll remember from Gaiden episode 31, has been nominated for eight Japan Academy Film Prize Awards. Now, these are the Japanese equivalent of the Academy Awards here in the States. And the movie's up for Picture of the Year, okay, Director of the Year, Best Cinematography, Best Lighting Direction, Best Art Direction, Best Sound Recording, Best Film Editing, and Newcomer of the Year. Now, the awards are being held on March the 10th, so more on that as it develops Uh, Probably, I guess, in the next episode, we'll see what the results of that are. Now, additionally, now we are getting very strong rumors that the Cleopatra Blu-ray release of Shin Ultraman will be out here in the U.S. on or around June 10th. This was first, I saw, reported by an outfit called Kaiju United. Looks like we'll we'll include that U.S. dub in addition to the original Japanese audio. Obviously, more on this uh, as we hear more on it. Very excited to get the Blu-ray of Shin Ultraman, as those of you who listen to that guide know I really enjoyed that film. And uh, I, I'm looking forward to seeing it again. I am a little curious about the dub, because I saw it subtitled, so I am curious about the dub. I've heard some varied takes on the dub. Let's just leave it at that, because I, I want to kind of make my own uh, judgment on that one. In Gamera news, Gamera Rebirth, the Netflix animated Gamera project, has had more details announced. This will be a six-episode series, and it's being hyped as Gamera vs. Five Kaiju, with the first revealed foe being, unsurprisingly but not unwelcoming, unwelcomed, Gauss. Uh, the series is slated to premiere worldwide on Netflix sometime in 2023. Again, more information as we get it. Now, speculation, of course, running wild on just who those other four enemy kaiju are going to be. A lot of chatter that I've seen that the final one will be a new monster of some kind, which I can see that. Uh, personally, I would like to see some of my favorites, Barugan, Virus, but we're just going to have to be patient uh, to see who we get in that series. Hey, you know, maybe Garasharp. I'm just putting it out there. Just putting it out there. Maybe it's time for Garrett Sharp to finally make an official debut. In theatrical news, Godzilla Tokyo SOS is evidently going to receive a one-night special engagement from Fathom Events here in the U.S. on March 22nd. Now, the odd thing is that as of recording, that date has popped up 
on the websites for specific theaters, including Regal, which normally does the Fathom events in my neck of the woods, but it's not actually shown up on the Fathom events website yet. So it looks official, it sounds official, I'm just going to put a little small asterisk next to this until it shows up on that Fathom event site. That says to me that maybe that date could still shift a little bit. Um, all that being said, uh, after the evident success of GXMG last year, Tokyo SOS seems like a no-brainer to me. Keep checking your local theaters and the Fathom event site if you're interested in that. Personally, I like GXMG better than Tokyo SOS, but I'm sure Tokyo SOS would look really cool on the big screen. And I didn't get to go to the GXMG uh, one-night event, so it would be nice if I could do the Tokyo SOS. Of course, speculation already running crazy that after GXMG last year, Tokyo SOS this year, is already a strong contingent saying, hey, does that mean Final Wars next year? And that does make sense, but little too early to tell on that. In home media news, SRS Cinema has a new Blu-ray release coming out in April entitled Super Legend God Hikoza. Hikoza is the new film from Minoru Kawasaki. Now, he was the director of Monster Seafood Wars, and this film looks to be along very similar lines of absurdity. Uh, Pre-orders are available for the Blu-ray right now. Like a lot of SRS Cinema releases lately, does include a poster. Shipment expected to begin fulfillment late April. Movie sounds like an absolute hoot. I've generally been very happy with supporting SRS Cinema, so I will be picking this one up. Uh, head over to srscinema.com if you're interested. In comic book news, February's issue of Previews has a listing for the Giga Complete Series Collection. Now, I missed this when it first came out. This five-issue miniseries from Vault Comics tells the story of ancient giant mecha named Giga, who fought a war for centuries, but when the war was over, they became humanity's new habitat as well as their new gods. Now, when a disgraced engineer discovers an apparently murdered Giga, causes chaos for the new society, which is ruled by a controlling, technology-based religion. I don't know how much of this story is really what one would consider a mecha versus a dystopian science fiction story, but the premise in and of itself does sound really intriguing. Collection is in shops May 24th, retails at $17.99. Uh, you can check out uh, previewsworld.com to find out information on this and talk to either your local comic shop or there's uh, obviously different mail order outfits you can use as well if you're interested in picking that up. And finally, in podcast network news... The Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast Network now has a server on Discord. And if you connect to the server, you can navigate over to the Earth Destruction Directive channel and connect with myself and other listeners. Now, I I get I'm a little behind the times. I'm still kind of learning all the tricks for Discord. But if nothing else, it gives everyone another avenue to not only reach me, but also to reach the entire Earth Destruction Directive community to talk. Now, the link to the TTF server is in the show notes for this episode, and I'm going to add it uh, in the show notes going forward, or I'm going to try to add it to the show notes going forward. I'm going to include it on my list of permalinks on the YouTube as well. So I look forward to seeing all you there. If you use Discord, drop in, say hi. I'd love to talk Earth Destruction Directive with everybody out there. All right, that's all the news I've got. If you have any news that you think would make sense here on Earth Destruction Directive, go ahead and send it to me, Directive at yahoo.com, and we'll talk about it here on the show. All right, I'm going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we're going to get right into Dawn of the Monsters right here on Earth Destruction Directive. You know... 
I'm the kaiju guy now, thanks to the Monster Island Film Fault. But before that, I was the superhero guy. I wonder if there's a way I could combine those. Hey, Nathan. Uh, Travis from Kaiju Weekly. Yeah, I'm here because I need a co-host for a new Toku Heroes podcast. Oh, what's it called? Him. Shin. Standing by. Complete. That's right, heroes. We are the Henshin Men, a tokusatsu superheroes appreciation podcast. Join us as we watch several episodes of a TV series from the wide world of Henshin heroes and discuss their merits and cultural significance. Starting with one of my all-time favorites, the original Kamen Rider from 1971. We'll give out awards for things like the best action scenes and crazy what the Henshin moments. So hear us every Monday in your favorite podcatcher to get your weekly Rider Kicks. Gotta go, because we only have a minute to henshin it. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Dawn of the Monsters is a beat-em-up, or brawler, as some of the kids nowadays say, video game developed by 13AM Games and published by Way Forward. The game was released in March of 2022 for Windows, Nintendo Switch, PlayStation 4, PlayStation 5, Xbox One, Xbox Series X slash S, and Google Stadia. Uh, the game was also released as a physical game through Limited Run Games, which is actually how I obtained it for my Switch. Uh, now, 13AM Games is an outfit with whom I was not familiar at all before this game. They describe themselves as a quote-unquote upstart video game studio and are based in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, which is likely why the first stage of this game is set in a ruined Toronto. Uh, other games that 13AM have developed include a platform racer named Runbo and an action platforming game named Double Cross, both of which look interesting enough to at least check out. So I'm definitely going to be taking a look at those um, based on my experience here with Dawn of the Monsters. Uh, now, the publisher, WayForward Technologies, that is a name I know quite well. Now, due to my great appreciation of the Game Boy Color, the Game Boy Advance, the Nintendo DS, and the Nintendo 3DS family, they're a studio with whom I was very familiar for games as wide and varied as WWF Betrayal, which was a uh, beat-em-up game with WWF Attitude Era wrestlers in it. Uh, uh, the Scorpion King, Sword of Osiris, a very cool side-scroller. Justice League Heroes The Flash, which is a fantastic uh, uh, beat-em-up game using uh, super speed in a very creative way on the GBA. And Mighty Switch Force, which is a favorite of mine from the 3DS era, uh, among many others. Now, regarding this show specifically... WayForward were also the studio responsible for the GBA title Godzilla Domination, which is sort of like a gojified version of King of Monsters, but without the wrestling aspect. Uh, another game which I do plan to cover here on this show at some point, so keep an eye out for that sometime in the indefinite future. Uh, the game itself for Dawn of the Monsters, it's straightforward in its setup. Now, from Wikipedia, the premise is as follows. The game begins in the year 2036, when enormous monsters known as the Nephilim invade Earth and cause massive destruction around the globe. Three decades later, humanity establishes the Defense Alliance Worldwide Network, Dawn, and recruits the help of four different guardian creatures, Megadon, Ganera, Aegis Prime, and Tempest Galahad, in an attempt to retake the planet from these beasts. Gameplay follows a 2.5D beat-em-up format, with a variety of smaller enemies to battle through, 
until you get to the end of the stage, possibly fighting a mini-boss or a boss character. Being a beat-em-up, there's a definite pick-up-and-play aspect to Dawn of the Monsters, which appeals to me. Being a child of the 1980s, and having cut my teeth on beat-em-ups with my brother, with Double Dragon on the uh, Sega Master System, and later games like Golden Axe and Streets of Rage for the Sega Genesis. For each mission, you choose which member of the team you will control. You got Megadon, a powerful, fire-breathing Saurian, Ganera, a deep-sea creature with massive crab-like claws, Tempest Galahad, a piloted mecha with several different weapons, or Aegis Prime, a human who taps into a mystical power to transform into a Kyodai hero. Each character shares the same control scheme, but of course the implementation of that scheme varies for each. At the bottom of the food chain are your light attacks, naturally. These do the lightest amount of damage, but they come out quickly, and they can generally be chained together into a little combination. Next up, you have heavy attacks, and as the name implies, these do a little more damage, but are a bit slower. Again, they can be chained into a combo, but there is some timing needed here. For example, Megadon's heavy attack will actually uppercut the enemy into the air, and the second heavy will smash them back down to the ground. Now, if you're too fast or too slow in the combination, Megadon will whiff on that second hit. Eventually, you also will unlock a variation of the heavy attack, where by holding down the heavy attack button, you get an even more powerful strike. It takes a few seconds to charge up. In addition to the light and heavy attacks, each character also has a dash attack, wherein they will strike an enemy a small distance in front of them. Now, this attack of the regular attacks takes the longest to wind up, but it does the most damage, and it often looks quite impressive. Aegis Prime's version is a flying dropkick, and it's clearly modeled on many such flying dropkicks, which various ultra heroes have attacked monsters with over the years. Each character also has a very unique ability, this really struck me as being something neat, to execute enemies who are near defeat. It's a one-hit killer. You press one button and you instantly kill the, uh, the enemy. It's at the cost of some rage... We'll talk about Rage in a few minutes. But it has the added benefit of restoring a little bit of health. It's key because health power-ups in this game are fairly limited. So if you manage using the executions, it's easier to build Rage than it is to regain health. So this is a way to keep yourself going and get a little health back if maybe you're a little low because you got cornered. Now in addition to the basic attacks, the two other key basic techniques are Block and Dodge. Both of these are important, as there can be a lot of enemies on screen at once, and absorbing damage endlessly will kill your guardian, resulting in a lower grade when you finish the stage. In fact, number of deaths is a statistic you're presented with after the completion of each stage. Now, both work similarly in that they allow you to mitigate an enemy attack. Dodge is exactly what the name implies. With the correct timing, your character dodges through the enemy's attack, taking no damage and often allowing you to punish the enemy as they continue their attack animation, sort of like you'd get in a 2D fighting game. Block, on the other hand, is essentially two techniques in one command. When you block, your monster covers up, reducing the advantage they take from the attacks. It's not perfect, of course. Eventually, your block can be broken, leaving you stunned. The more powerful command is parry, which requires absolutely spot-on timing. With parry, if you can time the block to exactly match your enemy's attack, you will reverse the damage back on the attacker. Very useful. Now this can be further buffed with augments, which is another thing we'll discuss in a little bit, but block and parry, again, very key, along with dodge, because there's a lot of enemies sometimes that you're facing. Now the next level up on the offensive chain are called rage attacks. 
Under your health bar, you have a series of smaller bars representing rage. These bars are slowly filled up as you stomp through the city, smashing the many, many destructible buildings and objects in your path. Honestly, this alone can be a lot of fun. Many buildings have a button prompt as you get near them. Uh, that they, These buildings can actually be picked up and wielded like weapons or tossed as projectiles. That in and of itself is, like I said, it's a lot of fun, but it can also be a tactical play. Arming yourself with a building and then tossing it as a foe as they come on screen, it's a good way to get a cheap hit at distance. And as soon as you pick up and then destroy the building, it builds your rage up. So it's a good little bit of synergy. Anyway, once your rage bars begin to fill up, you can access the rage attacks. Each guardian has three of these. Each one costs a different amount of rage bars. Generally, they fall into different categories of either being offensive, um, for example, Megadon's Fire Breath, which most Godzilla fans would likely appreciate. Uh, they can also be like buffs. Aegis Prime can change his fighting stance to buff his numbers to other kind of more unusual effects. Ganera can summon a minion to battle alongside her. And Tempest Galahad sets a landmine, which you can then trigger remotely when an enemy is nearby. The rage attacks, they're a lot of fun, but they can use up rage pretty quickly. So you have to keep track of that, along with keeping the range and effects in mind as well. Um, it's very frustrating if you've got it lined up and you go to hit your rage attack and you're out of range. and You've now wasted that rage. On the top of the offensive pyramid are cataclysm attacks. Now, there is a very large bar underneath the rage bars, which is filled up primarily through actually using rage attacks although there is a power-up you can find which will fill it as well. Now, these attacks, as the name applies, are absolutely devastating. They do major damage to enemies as well as the environment. Now, given the nature of the bar required to charge them, they can take a while to get to. So, you want to make sure you're ready to use them before hitting that command. These are graphically really quite impressive as well. Megadon unleashes a massive explosion of geothermal energy. Ganera floods the entire combat zone. Tempest Galahad pulls out a massive plasma cannon, you know, when in doubt, firepower, and Aegis Prime unloads with a major flurry combination. Now, with all these attacks at your disposal in the game, from light all the way up through the Cataclysm, it sounds like the game will be overwhelming, but I have to admit, I found that the tutorial walkthrough you get, they go through their use really well, and soon you'll have all of them on hand and ready to use. It doesn't take long to pick up the, the control scheme here. Dawn of the Monsters is broken down into 35 different levels, starting with a tutorial stage and then followed by a standard mission in Old Toronto. Now, this is followed by missions in Foz de Iguazio, which is in Brazil, Cairo in Egypt, and then Tokyo, Japan, naturally. Now, each one of these areas has a series of missions which get progressively harder, as one would expect, and as new standard enemies are introduced, they are actually called out and presented to the player. I like that. So as a new standard enemy shows up, they get a zoom in on them and they give you their name. You can imagine like an anime or a tokusatsu when a new character shows up for the first time and they put their name on the screen. That's what I thought with this. Each area is capped with a battle against a monarch, a big boss of the Nephilim. These are major battles requiring planning and strategy. Running straight at a boss will get you stomped into the dirt. So don't be surprised if these Monarch fights take a couple of tries before you get them figured out. I know they did for me. Now there's also a training stage where you can work on your combinations and all the characters' different attacks, represented in the story as a holographic training suite. 
Now, as you advance through the game, you can also unlock achievements typical of modern games. These can range from defeating a specific monarch to achieving specific actions, such as throwing one enemy's own projectile back at it, to oddball ones like roaring with each of the guardians. Between missions, there is a lot to do and see as well. The story unfolds via cutscenes, again, typical for this type of game, as we learn about the different characters and the larger story around Dawn, the Nephilim, and the Guardians themselves. The art of the cutscenes, and in fact, the art of the entire game, has a pseudo-manga feel to it, without being an outright manga style. Um, the director, Alex Rushdie, described the art design as a mix of manga and the works of like Mike Mignola. And I can see that in the character designs and the severe angles used throughout the game. That definitely has that Mignola style to it. In addition to the cutscenes, you can also access chats, which are little short snippets of scenes which only last for a limited time before they disappear. Uh, these often tease or hint at what may be coming down the road in the storyline. So they recommend every time you finish a mission to go back in and check the chats because, as I said, they're only there for a little bit of time before they disappear. Which is interesting, I'm not sure I've ever seen that in a game like this, where we have little bits of story that you can only get for a limited time, and then if you miss them, you won't see them. That, that was kind of interesting to me. Um, you can also check out the R&D lab, where using funds earned from your mission rankings, you can buy upgrades and cosmetics. And one nice touch is that the upgrades, which typically just give an increase to the health or the rage bar, they apply across the board. So if you buy one upgrade, uh, all four guardians get that benefit. Now, cosmetics, which come in the form of color schemes, they are only for a specific guardian, however. Finally, the other last thing you can do, you can check out the archives where profiles of the new Nephilim monsters are located, along with background information on the guardians, and an ongoing research tab detailing information being revealed as part of the story. The archives are also a nice way to check out the art on the Nephilim, as uh, they typically have a nice clean look at each enemy, along with some intel on their style of attacks and mode of... Uh, Mode of operandi, I guess you could say. One of the touches which sets Dawn of the Monsters apart from traditional beat-em-ups are augments. Uh, we mentioned these earlier. Augments are earned after each mission, and they are bonus buffs which allow you to customize the loadout on your Guardian. For instance, an augment will give you a damage bonus for a few seconds on a heavy attack if you had a combination of three light attacks, and another would stun all nearby enemies after performing an execution. Each Guardian gets three slots to equip augments, and you earn four augments after each mission, although some of these are typically ones you have already had, or duplicates, which can be sold for cash to then spend at the R&D lab. Having the three slots does allow you a fair amount of customization, as you can match the augments to each Guardian's strength, or mix and match to either synergize the augments, or have them complement or support each other. In the marketing material, this is touted as a sort of RPG-style advancement, and while I would not quite go that far, it is a nice addition to the game, which gives you some a nice level of additional control over the development of your Guardian. You combine these augments with the cosmetics available over in R&D, you can definitely put your own stamp on your favorite character and make the game work for you. I also want to make sure to mention that the game, like any good beat-em-up, can be played solo or two-player cooperative. However, as I do not know anyone else with a copy of the game for the Switch, I have not been able to try out this feature. Uh, multiplayer seems like a no-brainer for beat-em-ups. Like I said, this game is no different. Hopefully, I will get a chance to try that out at some point. But for now, I'm stomping solo. So, you may be asking, Luke, what does it all mean? Specs and features are all well and good if the game doesn't have it when the digital rubber meets the road. 
So let's get into the notes. When I first started up the game, I have to say I was really impressed with the presentation. For a beat-em-up game, I like that there was a piece of the story to get you started and present where you were coming into the story right up front. The opening also gave a brief glimpse into the four characters as a preview of sorts. From there, I figured we would end up at a menu. But actually, you go straight into the first mission in Toronto, which is that tutorial, and you play as Megadon. This part I did find a little strange. You do not get to choose your character for the tutorial. But the more I thought about it, I figure hmm, most players, they're going to want to start as the Godzilla analog anyway. So let's just cut out the, let's cut to the chase. The tutorial does a good job of walking you through the controls and the options you have available, moving from basic city smashing to the basic attacks to executions, rage attacks, finally cataclysm attacks. Nice touch is that once you finish that stage, you can replay the tutorial mission with any character, which I found quite helpful to get a feel for each one because you know what's coming. It's not super challenging, but it lets you, you know, in a, in a real environment, try out the different combinations and attacks that all the characters have. The gameplay is straightforward, very easy to jump into. Very quickly, you find yourself thrown into the fray, wading through the ruins of Toronto, smashing through different Nephilim. There's a definite sense of discovery as well here, both with the different attacks and abilities of your guardian, but also the new and varied enemies which are introduced as you advance. You learn pretty quickly that there are some enemies you can just slam into and overpower, but most of the time the game wants you to use the various attacks wisely, fight with your head, as well as your claws or fangs or blasters or whatever. Right out of the gate, I found the controls mostly to be intuitive and easy to learn. Performing combinations of the light and heavy attacks, fighting the rage on dash attacks, all pretty second nature. Rage and Cataclysm were straightforward as well, once you learn the controls for them. The biggest challenge control-wise from the start, for me, was actually dodge and block and parry. This aspect reminds me a bit of the parrying system in Metroid Samus Returns for the 3DS family, which as an aside, is a great game that if you've, uh, the first Metroid game I've ever beaten... And uh, I beat it a couple years back, highly recommend it if you're into Metroid at all, but this is not a Metroid podcast. Uh, now, in both that system and this system, the timing is absolutely crucial to turn away the enemy attack. It's forewarned by a flash from the enemy as they're getting ready to attack. The dodge and parry controls do take some time to learn, but it can be done. It's not, it's unfair, it's just, it's very exact. Once you have the timing down, you can do it most of the time, and it's very helpful. I personally am better at the dodge. I think dodge may be a little bit more forgiving than parry, but dodge is still useful. Like I said, it's similar to a, a 2D fighting game where if you can dodge the attack, you then can punish the opponent, and I find that works pretty well. I'm still working on parry. I can get it, but it's got to be right on, it seems like, with parry. The artwork has a cell-shaded look, like a digital ink and paint, if you will. The Guardians and the Nephilim stand out very nicely against the backgrounds. The colors are evocative and bold. Megadon looks like an absolute fiery force of nature, while Tempest Galahad looks like something between a cross of a Jaeger and a traditional super robot. The rank-and-file Nephilim seem to be mostly from the Pacific Rim school of kaiju design, but there are some more outlandish ones mixed in in there, including a species which spit organic grenades across the screen, or a different one that charge like bulls to gore you with their long horns. The monarchs have a lot of personality and style. The battles against them stand out uh, just about as much for the challenge 
is they do the almost cinematic approach to the combat. As you approach each monarch, you get a little cutscene seeing them getting ready to attack you. It's very, very cool. The cutscenes uh, and other non-game scenes look right in line with what I'd expect from a game with which WayForward has a hand. They're clean, bright, easy to understand and follow. The character designs for the, uh, the humans, they look like they came from, this is the only way I can say this, a North American studio producing an anime show which fits the background of this game's development pretty, pretty much on the nose, right? I mean, you've got a Canadian uh, studio developing a game that leans very heavily on Japanese tokusatsu, so I can, I can kind of make that connection, right? I will say that, like a lot of beat-em-ups, there's not a huge variety in gameplay. That comes with the genre. Some games do better about this than others. Dawn of the Monsters, it's good at what it does. It presents a Daikaiju brawling game with some ability to customize your character, rather than trying to push the genre into new territory mechanically. And it's a reasonable criticism, but as a fan of the genre, I'm willing to overlook it if the foundational gameplay is strong, which it is, and the theme is executed well, which it is. Uh, the game is also not particularly fast, nor overly fluid in how it looks and plays. These are large characters, they move like Daikaiju, uh, diplomatically you could probably call the game methodical. Again, in service of the theme, this is fine, but it is a legitimate point to bring up relative to other, you know, quote-unquote modern beat-em-up games. Personally, I'm good with the pace and animation, I'm a fan of the theme though. A neutral player might not be as forgiving. Of course, if you're listening to this show, you may not be a neutral player, you're probably already a giant monster fan. Now, given those criticisms, I do have to say the game was well-met and well-reviewed upon release, the Switch version garnering an 81 out of 100 average on Metacritic, and the PS5 uh, version scoring a 76 on Metacritic. In general, reviews were favorable, uh, lack of challenge often being mentioned as a negative, but I can see that. You know, this it's, it's a, it's a, it's a beat-em-up game. There's only so much, I mean, you can keep continuing, keep continuing, you know. This, this is a genre that started in the arcades where they wanted you to keep putting quarters in. So they made it difficult, but not impossible, because they want you to keep putting quarters in, right? So the same idea here, it's just, uh, there's no quarters. I tried putting quarters into the Switch, it doesn't work. Uh, <laughs> now, personally, I don't usually pay attention to reviews, if I'm being honest. I find too often reviews for, for any media, mostly movies, but this is really any media nowadays. They're more driven by ideology, um, a desire to pick winners and losers rather than the merit of whatever's being reviewed. Still, I do have to say, in the case of an indie game like this one, the reviews are useful in that a smaller game does not necessarily open itself up to the more p p cynical, kind of pointed write-ups you get for the big-ticket games. I'm not really into that scene. I, I more prefer indie games nowadays, so... I can at least get more of an honest feel for those, and I think you do the, the bigger releases. That That's just my freestyle take on it. Overall, I am really enjoying Dawn of the Monsters. And yes, I said enjoying, because I've not even beaten it yet. I'm still working through it. But I am glad that I decided to go in on that limited run games edition. As a game to pick up and play for a little bit after work, not requiring hours of dedication in a single session to make any positive advances, Dawn of the Monsters fits the bill nicely letting me just smash some city blocks and wipe out some enemies for a while, and put it down and come back to it later. Game looks nice, it runs really well in my Switch Lite, and captures the feel of a giant monster comic book or cartoon series really strongly. Now, if you're a fan of beat-em-ups, or maybe you're curious about them and want to give one a shot, and you're listening to this podcast, 
Dawn of the Monsters would be a worthwhile game for you to pick up. As I said, it's available for all sorts of different systems. So if you'd like to own Dawn of the Monsters, it is available on the digital storefronts for all of those major platforms, as I mentioned at the top of the segment. Now, if you want that physical copy of the game, however, that will be more of a challenge. Uh, I checked it right before recording. The game is showing as sold out in all formats and versions on limited run games. So if you must have it physically, it's going to have to be the secondary market. I will say that, while in general, I have always preferred physical media. I have to admit, I have come around a bit on digital games, if only because for many, especially these indie games, that's your only option. Or maybe you might have an, uh, you know, the ability to do like a limited run game or something, but the cost differential makes it impractical to go that way sometimes. Um, in this case, being this type of you know, Daikaiju game, I, I was willing to do that. For games maybe of a different theme that I like, you know, maybe it's not worth it. Again, everybody has to make that decision. Um, but again, big hit with me. I'm really enjoying it. My kids are enjoying watching me playing. If I had a regular Switch, I'm sure we'd have some two-player stuff going on, but maybe that'll be down the road. And since I have the physical game, I can get a regular Switch and take the cartridge out of my Switch Lite and put it into the Switch and still play it as I'm pantomiming it for everyone to see as I hold my hand up to the microphone. Uh, so now I throw the gauntlet to you, the listener. Have you played Dawn of the Monsters? Did you think it lives up to the hype or does it need more work? Write in and let me know. EarthDestructionDirective at Yahoo.com. We can talk about it here on the show. All right, that's all I've got on uh, Dawn of the Monsters. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll get into listener feedback and close out the show right here on Earth Destruction Directive. This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The Shortbox Showcase. But then again may have. About a father and daughter. I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Walking Dead, Tintin, Black Lightning, White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory when the great guests were yet to be booked. Let's put it this way, Shogun Warriors wasn't going to win any Eisners. And the great feats of editing not yet performed. And this is Ultra 7, this is Ultraman Jack, and this is Ultraman Taro, and this is Ultraman Leo. And this Ultra- of how they spoke at length. This continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. But to be fair, the best kind of confession is the Force Confession and reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Red Sun is wonderful with a very strange ending. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers, and the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search in iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Shortbox Showcase. And remember, we're not experts. We're just family. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. And I hold in my hand my favorite part of any episode, the... 
listener feedback. So if you would like to get in touch with the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. You can also reach me on Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube, and now Discord. So if you'd like to uh, get in touch, listen to the outro to the show, and uh, we'll give you the information that you need. Our email this time comes from Nathan Marchand over at the Monster Island Film Vault, and Nathan writes, Ultraman Saga. Is it a zero movie? Hmm. Nathan writes, greetings from Monster Island, Luke. Greetings, Nathan. Always glad to hear from you. I've been catching up on your show during my Christmas break, and I was happy to hear you cover Ultraman Saga. Since you said your mailbag was a bit dry, and this film represents two of my podcasts, Monster Island Film Vault and The Henshin Men, I figure I'd write in. I watched Ultraman Saga as the capper to viewing the Ultraman Zero collection, which, as an aside, we did mention, and the uh, episode is in that Mill Creek collection. Uh, Nathan continues, in fact, I covered the two side stories on a pair of Henshin Men episodes, which featured my friends Jack G-Man Hudgens and J.R. Villers from the Drift Space podcast. As the end of a trilogy for Zero, the film is... odd. Zero feels more like he's part of an ensemble than the star. I agree with that completely, Nathan. I agree with that completely. It is... After, again, the arc that Zero takes in his movies, this one just kind of goes off in its own direction. And I can usually applaud that, but it does seem odd. Odd is the right word. Uh, Nathan continues, it's almost more about Dinah from what I can remember. As you said, it lacks the scope and stakes of the previous two Zero films, but that doesn't make it bad. It just doesn't have the oomph of the previous ones, including the side stories. Um, yeah, and I agree. It's not a bad movie. It's just, it's, it's odd that it's the final one. It almost feels like, and again, I'm, I'm just kind of freestyling here. It almost feels like this should be the second one, right? In that Zero is, you know, the guy that's gotta, gotta come to terms with, with what he did wrong and learn to be a hero in the first one. And here he's, you know, again, you gotta change it a little bit, but he's on his own. He's learning. You know, he's he's helping somebody out. He's learning from these older Ultras. And then, Revenge of Belial, he's got to go recruit his whole team and become the big damn hero, right? So it's almost like that. The details don't quite fit, but I, I, it is just an odd trajectory, like I said. Um, Nathan continues, I do like the interesting concept, the funny ideas, and the pretty girls, though. Oh, Nathan, you dog. <laughs> Until next we meet again. Hopefully on either of our shows, keep them stomping. Sincerely, Nathan Marchand, hosting curator of the Monster Island Film Vault. Nathan, thank you very much for writing in. It is always good to hear from you, and we do need to collaborate again uh, sometime in the near future. Always fun to, to talk to you. And yeah, um, Zero, it's, it, Saga is, it, it's a good standalone little movie. And, and I don't mean that in any pejorative way. I, I like the movie. It's just, compared to the two before it, it's just different. And sometimes different is good, sometimes different is bad, sometimes different is just different. And in this case, I really do think it's different is just different. And it's enjoyable on its own right. And it's funny because, as we've seen with, like, Ultra Galaxy Fight, we've seen the continued evolution of Zero. And you can... Saga fits in well with that, I think. The idea that now every, everybody's starting to look up to him a little bit, right? So, thank you very much, uh, Nathan, for writing in. Great to hear from you. Uh, so, social media... Likes, shares, retweets, thumbs ups, all those good things for the last episode came from my brother, Mr. Jason Giaconetti, John Vanover, Gene Gene, the podcasting machine, Hendrix, Chris Mounts, Derek, Derek WC, that fan hole, Tim Elliott, 
Billy D, a.k.a. Doc Strange, Bob Hansen, Matthew Master Giovanni, Brian Severe, the affirmation Nathan Marchand, and Jimmy from NASA, together they are, the Monster Island Film Vault, Mr. Lomax, Camo Bat Dad, Crystal Lady Jessica, the Henshin Men Podcast, the Two Man Power Trip Podcast, it's really just a Power Trip Podcast, but I call it the Two Man Power Trip Podcast, Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, the Telltale Mind, Jeffrey Brown, Keith G. Baker, and Professor Alan Middleton from the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Thank you, everyone, for all of your support on social media. I say this all the time, and it's always true. Social media helps a podcast out so much because it gets the word out and really just shows people what you're enjoying. And if, if there's a podcast you listen to, whether it's Earth Destruction Directive, Monster Island Film Vault, Bots, Bugs, and Babes, Get Back to the Wrestling, you know, the Vault of Starting Monster Horror Tales of Terror, I guess there are other podcasts out there. I don't know. <laughs> Any podcast you listen to, put them out there on social media. Give them a like on Facebook. Give them a, 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 a like and a retweet on uh, Twitter, you know, boost them any way you can, because anything to get these fan podcasts out there, it really helps them out. And it's really appreciated. I'm, I'm speaking for myself, but I know I speak for other podcasters when I say it is appreciated and it is really means a lot. So thank you everyone for there. Um, I also like to take an opportunity to say, as always, Earth Destruction Directive is for everyone. If you want to be part of this podcast as part of the giant monster culture you're welcome to interact with this show in any way that you feel comfortable, right? We've we've had kind of a, a rough last few months as far as things going down in the fandom that have been really, you know, uh, have really brought a lot of grief, right? And and so this show is about celebrating what I love, and I love giant monsters, and I want to share that with people. So if you want to be part of that, you're welcome to be, you know, interact with this show however you'll feel comfortable. You can join the Discord, and you can talk to us there. You can write me an email. You can hit me on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. However you feel comfortable, most comfortable reaching out, please get in touch. Okay. And, you know, don't be, don't be like, well, I'm just getting started. I, I don't know. If I, everybody gets started somewhere, right? Everyone gets started somewhere with whatever hobby it is. Everybody is a noob at some point, right? So the trick is from being the new guy, and I don't mean that in a gendered way, from the new guy to good old, right? Ah, good old Jack and Eddie. He's been around forever, right? So it's, you know, don't, don't feel like, there's, there's no gatekeeping here. We're, we're here. We're a show for the people, <laughs> right? We're like, we're like rock. We're like the rock. We're basically the people's champion of podcasts, which is funny because I previously had described myself as the super collider of Daikaiju podcasts. And I'm going to leave that one out there for everyone else to think about. But in closing for my weird rambling, all are welcome at her destruction directive. All right. I think I've gone on long enough. I think we need to close this out. We can't close out the show unless we say, what are we talking about next time? So next time, we're going to go back. We This is going to be the third time we've covered this topic in the year of 2023. But you know what? I programmed the show so I can do whatever the heck I want. We're going back to Ultraman. And we're going to be taking a look at episodes 32 and 33 of the original series featuring the monsters Zumbalar and Mephilus. This is really amusing because Zumbalar and Mephilus have both turned up on this show recently, but now we're going back to the beginning, so we're going to see the origins of Zumbalar and Mephilus Ultraman episodes 32 and 33 next time if you want to watch ahead. I would like to thank everybody for listening to the show today. Hope you all enjoy talking about Dawn of the Monsters. And hey, if you're playing on the Switch, 
let me know what you think. Cause I said that that's what I'm playing on. I know I've heard some other folks and I, I think Nathan did some stuff. I forget what platform that was on, uh, where he was live streaming in a bit. So if you're playing on the switch, I'd love to get specific feedback about that too, but thank you for listening. Hear me talk about Dawn of the Monsters. Please come back next time. We're going to talk about a couple episodes of Ultraman. Uh, and until then keep them stomping. This has been earth destruction directive, a Daikaiju podcast. Produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you would like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I try to respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I will read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at 2truefreaks.com. You can also find the show on your favorite podcatcher. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave a review on your podcatcher of choice if you'd like. You can find me on Facebook. Just search for first name Luke, last name E-D-D. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter. Just search for the handle at Giacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. The theme song for this podcast is Future Gladiator by Kevin MacLeod. Downloaded from Incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 License. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun here on Earth Destruction Directive. Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF (laughs) moment if I ever saw one.